Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah, salatu wassalamu ala Rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. Amma ba'du fa'udhu billahi minash shaitanir rajim. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Wa ala bi hurairata radiyallahu anhu, Abdurrahman ibn Sakhr radiyallahu anhu, qala, sami'tu Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam yaqul, ما نهيتكم عنه فاجتنبوه وما أمرتكم به فأتوا منه ما استطعتم فإنما أهلك الذين من قبلكم كثرة مسائلهم واختلافهم على أنبيائهم رواه البخاري ومسلم الحمد لله we're continuing with the 40 hadith of Imam al-Nawawi and as we mentioned previously that this 40 hadith is a compilation of all of those hadith that are the fundamental principles of Islam. So any hadith that you pick out from this book, it will be indicating to a fundamental necessary principle of the deen. In other words, it's like a rule to be followed, or it's a salient feature of the deen. You understand? Like previously we mentioned, uh, you know, a hadith that passed, ad deen al-nasiha, right? Deen is well-wishing for everybody. It's sincerity towards everybody. Having a concern about all of humanity. Lillahi wa yani To have a relationship of sincerity to everyone that you make mu'amala with. You understand? And then the discussion, you know, continued. So, if we were to read the 40 hadith of Imam al-Nawawi in totality, it will give us an idea of what the nature of Islam is. Do you understand? Like you see the like the tenets of faith of Buddhism or the tenets of faith of Hinduism or the tenets of faith of whatever religion. So the 40 hadith of Imam Nawawi, what Imam Nawawi is attempting to do is that every hadith in this book is telling you something very, very special, a salient feature of Islam, a very special fundamental point about Islam. And an interesting point, why this book is so important. Because many of us, for example, I think it's a blessing for us to be in a community where we interact with people of other faiths. Why this is a blessing? is because it, it, it informs you. Otherwise, a lot of times, we won't take the time out to go and read about our deen and read about our faith unless somebody asks us something about it or we're challenged about it. You see? So... It's, it, this book is really important because it gives you that material that some, for example, if somebody would ask you, okay, what does Islam teach? Or what are the teachings of Islam? The 40 hadith of Imam al-Nawawi compiles and selects those particular statements from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi where it tells you what are the fundamental points, fundamental principles of our deen. So first and foremost, it's necessary for you to know. And then secondly, right, after that, you know, whoever wants to know about the deen, you'll be able to explain that to them. So, here's another hadith that is narrated by Abu Huraira, radiallahu anhu, who said that I heard the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, saying, ma anhu What I have prohibited you from, abstain from that. And whatever I have commanded you to do, then do it to the best of your capacity. So now, 
the first one and the second one, they're tied together by some very, very important point, and that's al-istita'ah. Mastata'atum. Al-fi'lu al-awwal, al-nahi. Ma nahaytukum. Wal-fi'lu al-thani, al-amr. Yani, fa'atu minuhu, wajtanibuhu, mastata'atum. The istita'ah goes back to the nahi, the, you know, to the extent of your capacity goes back to staying away from what the, the, the Prophet has prohibited and fulfilling what the Prophet ﷺ has commanded. This is an amazing usul and principle of the deen. Very easy. Ad-deenu yusr. This is the meaning of Islam is easy. Allah has not made it difficult. Right? Yuridu Allahu bikumul yusr wa la yuridu bikumul usr. Allah wants for you ease and Allah does not want for you difficulty. When I was, I was in San Diego and in close vicinity, there was a lot of Jewish people, Jewish community. And some of the rules that you hear about a man, you think, you know, sometimes you think our rules and stuff like that is stringent. They have very, very stringent laws. They have very, very strict laws. To such an extent that, you know, I don't know if this is still being followed, but, you know, the, the Jewish Orthodox have very, very strict, strict laws of, you know, what they have to do. And those strict and stringent laws was actually a punishment that came upon them because of their disobedience of the messengers and kind of, you know, being, um, being audacious and causing... Uh, disturbance to their messengers and we'll, 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 get, we'll get back to this to that point it's a very important point to take into consideration so here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying or the messenger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying is that whatever you've been commanded and whatever you've been prohibited to what extent do you have to fulfill that until you die is that what the shariat wants that you try to fulfill the commandment or stay away from the prohibitions until you're brought to the brink of death and you die doing it. Is that what the situation is? You know, we heard, uh, you know, uh, there was some nurses at the hospital, they were just asking about us, that, would you do a blood transfusion? I said, yeah, I mean, if it's a life and death situation, we do a blood transfusion. Oh, okay, because some people don't do it uh, because of religious reasons. So then I explained to them, I said, in our religion, if something is going to save you from death, it is necessary for a Muslim to opt for that. So, oh, oh okay, that's very interesting. And why this is important, look at the, the, what, what, what the Prophet is teaching us. مَا نَهَيْتُكُمْ عَنْهُ فَاجْتَنِبُوهُ وَمَا أَمَرْتُكُمْ بِهِ فَأْتُوا مِنْهُ مَسْتَطَعْتُمْ to the extent of your ability. This extent of our capacity and our ability, capacity is not to the level of halak, not to the level of mot. Sharia, deen, Islam does not want you to follow the religion until it kills you. <laughs> if the religion was brought here to kill us, what's the, what's the point? I don't want to follow something that kills me. I want to follow something that preserves me. And this is why a very, very beautiful usul for us, to another, another principle to remember. The sharia and the laws of Islam were revealed to preserve five things. Remember this. 
Islam was revealed, Sharia and Islam, you know, like, Sharia law, you know, all these things that they're trying to put in your brains to scare the hell out of you. Sharia law, you know, oh, automatically Sharia law. Grab him, chop his hand off because, you know, he looked at my car or something. Where did you get that from? Sharia law. Sharia law came to preserve you, not to cut off your limbs and, 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 and kill you and execute people. You know, Sharia law. Let me tell you what Sharia law is. Five things. Hifdul al-nafs, hifdul mal, hifdul nasab, hifdul ird, and lastly, hifdul deen. If I, if I forget the, each one, then remind me. Number one thing that the Sharia has been revealed for, these are called the maqasidul khams. Al-maqasidul khamsa. The five objectives of why the Sharia was revealed in the first place. Right? Siyanatun nafs. Siyanatun nafs. The preservation of life. Islam was revealed and brought for the preservation of life. I give you an example. What is preservation of life? I'm in the desert. I have nothing else to eat. And there is something that is haram or impermissible. For example, there is a snake or there is pork and I have to eat that in order to save my own life. Sharia demands, this is one of the objectives of Sharia, that you must take that option to preserve your life. Sharia demands that you preserve your life. You must eat or drink what might be prohibited because you only just follow the Sharia or the commands or the prohibitions to the extent of your capacity. Now when your capacity is, you know, to that level that if you are not going to do what is prohibited, you will die. Then you must do that. Why? Because number one on the list of why the Sharia was revealed was to preserve life. Suyanatul nafs or suyanatul hayat. Number one, the preservation of wealth. What does that mean, preservation of wealth? That you should not do anything. Sharia was revealed to preserve people's wealth and not be a cause of its squandering and not be a cause of its wasting. For example, an example of that is um, a person is praying in the train station or a person is praying in, in the airport and their luggage is, is next to them. Somebody comes and just while you're in prayer, they take your luggage. Now you are fulfilling a commandment of Allah. Iqamatul salah. Allah says, Aqimus salah. It's a command, right? But you're supposed to fulfill the command to the extent of your capacity. Now number two on the list, Sharia says, you must preserve your wealth. Now that is your wealth, your property. Somebody is coming and robbing your property. Should you continue to now perform your prayer? No, it is necessary for you to break your prayer to preserve that wealth that is going to be lost. Somebody is going to rob you. Your property. Another point to understand for the preservation of life and for the preservation of wealth. Why is it said, And in the capital punishment, that a life for a life. If somebody kills somebody else, murders somebody else unjustly, and it is proven, Islam teaches that you have to take the life of that person. The objective of this is what? That when this punishment is, is implemented, it is a deterrent for anyone else who might want to do the act of murder. 
So in reality, you have taken that one life, but you have preserved all the other lives because this is a deterrent in the society that people will know that this action that I have done, this crime that I have perpetrated has a consequence. That if I take the life of someone else, my life is, my life is not going to be preserved. And this also has been established and Allah has set this commandment to preserve life. To preserve life. Not to take life, to preserve life. Because people think that when that life is taken, probably, you know, millions of people are going to be killed. No, millions of people are not going to be killed. That one person will be killed and millions of people will take heed. I'll tell you something, and this is a, a very important point to take into consideration. Right now, as many people know, Afghanistan has a new government, right? And one of the things that, I mean, my mother-in-law, these are, I mean, these aren't, hardcore Sharia supporters. Do you see what I'm saying? They're just regular Muslims. My mother-in-law is telling me, I love this new government because I can walk outside with my mobile phone and nobody will rob me. They don't know. They're not hardcore Sharia followers or mullahs or clerics or followers of you know, any group. They don't care. The public just wants their wealth to be preserved. She said, I really like this because before, if I walk with my mobile phone or I'm a woman, I did not feel safe walking on the street in my own country. But now I feel safe. I can go on my own street and I, nobody's going to rob me of my mobile, of my phone. Before, you would walk down the street, give me whatever you have or you're going to die right here. That's what it was. You could not go out of your house after 8 p.m. in a Muslim country and there's a masjid right next to you. Believe it or not, three, four years ago, I called back home, Kabul, and I asked my, my mother-in-law, how's everything? Oh, how's Tarawi going? Ramadan. In Ramadan. I called back home. You know, uh, how's Tarawi going? We can't go to Salatul Tarawi. In Kabul. In Kabul, Afghanistan. We can't go to Salatul Tarawi. Why? He said, because we're afraid that people are going gonna to go on the way, people are going to rob us. It's not safe. And I was there in that neighborhood in Kabul, it, the, 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 uh, the, the masjid from her, her house, from my in-law's house, is like from here uh, to the school over there, like that much distance. And I said, we, we cannot go out at night because we're afraid that they're going to rob us while we walk in a Muslim country in Kabul, Afghanistan. This is, thank you, congratulations. <laughs> this is what's going on. Now what's happening, okay, this new government came, not a single hand has been cut. But there was a couple of hands that were cut 20 years ago. You know, just think about this is interesting. The same government had come about 20 years ago. Okay, and then it all came to an end and now they're, they're, the government is in power again. The point is, now in this few months that they have come, they haven't done anything. Before... Three, four people got their hands cut for 20 years till now people have been afraid that if these people come again, somebody drops their wallet, nobody's going to look at someone else's wallet. This is what Sharia came for the preservation of people's property, for the preservation of people's life, for the preservation of people's mal. Not that it's going to happen. It happened 20 Why have they not done it again? I'm asking this very valid question. This happened 20 years ago. They haven't cut a single hand in these five months. And not a single crime or, or robbery has taken place. Why? Because it's the deterrent and the fear and the terror 
of 20 years ago. Point being is, man-made laws, we have our own morality. Oh my God, you know, what, that robber is so honorable? That murderer is such an honorable person? Hmm? That moment that he decided to do that by his own will, he lost his right and he lost his honor of keeping that hand. If it's, you know, how do you say, proven beyond a reasonable doubt that he has and there's proof. But my point is, the preservation of life, the preservation of wealth, the preservation of honor, right? And what is the preservation of honor? Right? You cannot say about a Muslim in public that you are an illegitimate person. We have a specific word for that. I don't want to say the word in the masjid. It starts with a B, right? A B-A-S, right? You're an illegit illegitimate person. You're, out, you're, you're born from haram. To say that to a person, in Islamic law, you can take that person to court and sue them, sharan. Because this is, you have a right for honorable recognition. Nobody can dishonor you in that way. So to say that to a person, you can actually take a person and the hakim or the qadi can take them to task for what they have said about you. Also, part of the honor of a believer is why ghibat has been made haram. To talk behind a Muslim, behind their back, is haram in Islam. This is very interesting. Does any religion say that? Like, for example, you know, you're not here and I talk about you. Something that you might not like something that you would not approve of, you would, it would hurt you. And I say that, even if it's true. So, oh, but it's true, it's not ghibat, it's true. No, even if it's true, if the person would not like that you say that in his face, it's haram to say that. Because Islam has preserved the honor of another human being. SubhanAllah. Imagine, this is sharia. Siyanatul nafs, siyanatul mal, siyanatul ird, siyanatul nasab. The preservation of lineage. The preservation of lineage. What is the meaning of preservation of lineage? This is why adultery is haram. And fornication is haram. So that the lineage of a human being is preserved and a person is born in wedlock with legitimate marriage so that that child has honor, and we know who is the father of that child and who is the mother of that child. So the person has izza, a person honor, lineage, progeny. This is what makes human beings and, and separates human beings from animals. And look at the society, what we've become, or American society has become. I was actually at a pediatrician. I mean, I can't even believe that this is a poster at the pediatrician's office. I'm sitting there and I look at the poster and it says, it's great to be a father. Claim your, your, your children. Yeah. Take pride in being a father. Raise your kids. And I'm, I'm looking at that, and I mean, I'm sitting in the pedi pediatrician. I'm like, why is this in a pediatrician's office? In other words, these people go around like a, like a male dog goes around right, inseminating female dogs, and he has his whatever in, in, you know, all these, you know, different women, 
and different females. He has a child with each one, you know, doesn't know like, okay, that, some of these children don't know who my dad is. My, my mom had a one-night stand with the guy and I don't know who my dad is. A large percentage of people who are in prison are people that are like this. Go figure. Why did that happen? This is Allah's wishes for humanity. Honor. And we have nobilified human beings that we have made these things haram. Youngsters always ask me, Shaykh, how come I can't have a girlfriend? Shaykh, how come I can't? Yeah, we have a girlfriend because what you do with that girlfriend or what you do with that boyfriend is something that is a, an act that has to be done in wedlock with responsibility of what the consequence of that union is going to be. There is union that's going to be taking place between a boyfriend and a girlfriend, a relationship. There's consequences of that. Because if you think that that relationship, the result of that relationship or the objective of that relationship is just fulfillment of your desires, then guess what? There's no difference be between you and a street dog. Or a pig or a donkey that whatever it feels like, it climbs on the other female or male for, for that. It's common amongst animals. Now they're saying this is another new argument of the community, right? A new argument is, well, it's common amongst animals. Oh, okay, then oh, go, go ahead and do it. It's common amongst dogs. So, wow, that's a good hujjah. That's a good dalil for you. It's a good proof for you. Dogs do it. So homosexuality is very common amongst monkeys. So I guess it's okay for us. Natural. No, we are separate. Allah has nobilified human beings. Allah has given honor to human beings. So that, I mean, just think about this. When you think about your own self, that somebody would ask you, where did you come from? He said, oh, alhamdulillah, this is my mother, this is my father. They were wed in the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Or they were wed in the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They were wed... They were joined together in the name with the recitation of Qur'an and they were brought together in the most sanctified and honorable way. Isn't that honorable? Or to say, well, I don't know, I think my mom or my dad had a one-night stand and that's how I came. I don't know who my dad is, I don't know who my mom is. They met one time and that's how I came in the world. My point is, people criticize the Sharia. Whereas the Sharia is doing all of these things and requiring all of these things of the Amr and of the Nahi. For what? For the preservation of humanity. To nobilify us, to honor us, to set us separate, to put us on a pedestal above the animal kingdom. That we're not chimpanzees and gorillas and orangutans. This is what makes us human beings, the preservation of these things. Otherwise, anybody can come with a baseball bat, hit somebody else in the head, and take their wife, hit somebody else in the head, take their wealth. What does that make us? Cavemen. That's not where we came from. We didn't come from chimpanzees, and we didn't come from caves. We came from Sayyidina Adam, alayhi salam. Our father was a prophet. He was not a chimpanzee. So anybody, who, whoever your progeny goes back to, that's how you're acting. So they take pride, right? That we came from apes and chimpanzees. So, okay, that, that's what you're going to act like and that's what you're going to become and that's what your society is going to be. And we take honor that our forefather was Adam. He, he, he was created by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He descended from paradise. He was Khalifatullahi fil ard. 
He was the vicegerent of Allah on this earth. The representative of Allah is on this, on this earth. Allah created Adam with the, most, with the most honor. Allah made the angels prostrate to Adam. That is our father. Now we aspire to be like that. We aspire for that nobility. We aspire for that character. We aspire for that angelic quality. Not even angelic, above angel. Because the angels prostrated. If the angels prostrated to him, that means he was higher and above the angels. Do you see how a narrative affects the psychology and how people conduct themselves in a community and in a society? The narrative, right? The narrative of where we come from. If your narrative is, you you, you're, you're the awlad of Bani Adam. Ya Bani Adam, as Allah Ta'ala says. So, and then the lastly, right, siyanatu deen, the preservation of deen. Right, the preservation of deen. And for the preservation of deen in Islam, that is what, right, all of the other rituals, right, all the other acts of prayer and five daily prayers, all of these things that have been given to us is so that we have that, Connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And all of this is mustatatum to the extent of your capacity. Because if something goes beyond your capacity, then all of these five things that we mentioned will take precedence. The preservation of these five things will take precedence. Now, another point to take into consideration. When was this hadith mentioned? We mentioned this previously and I'll say it again. In studying the Quran, we have to take into consideration the sababun nuzul of the ayah. That gives us the background and the reason behind revelation. So for example, Surah Qulhu Allahu Ahad, say Allah is one. There is nothing like unto him. He was not begot, right? He does not beget, nor was he begotten, and there is nothing like unto him. Right? I mean this is a in, in summary, right, sifat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But what is the background of this? What is the background? This is called the sababun nuzul, the reason of revelation. So we heard that the sababun nuzul of this ayah is that the Jews came, they said, Oh, Messenger of Allah, O oh, Muhammad, tell us what is the lineage of Allah. Where did God come from? So who's God, the son of, the son of who, the son of, you know, what's his lineage? And when in answer to this question, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed this. Say that Allah is one. Right? He is the independent from all his creation. He does not beget, nor was he begotten, and there is nothing like unto him. So when you, when you, when you see the reason behind revelation, or tabbat yada abi lahabin watab, right? Abu Lahab said, may Allah destroy you, O Muhammad, and then these verses were revealed. So we know that there is a reason behind the revelation of certain verses. Now there's something in hadith as well. It's the contextualization of the hadith. It's called sababul wurud. One is sababun nuzul. That is the reason behind revelation of an ayah. Sababun nuzul. Why that ayah was revealed. And then there's something. It's called sababul wurud. لماذا ورد هذا الحديث؟ ولأي موقع ورد هذا الحديث؟ ولماذا قال النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم هذا الحديث؟ 
وَلِمَنْ قَالْ وَلِمَاذَا Right? When? Where? What? When? How? Right? All that, those questions that should be asked. So here of this, that whatever I've commanded you, do it to the best of your capacity. Whatever I've forbidden you, then stay away from it to the best of your capacity. For verily, the people before you were destroyed because they were constantly disputing with their messengers. Oh, well, what about this? But, 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 but what about this? But what about this? You know, some people do that, right? So the reason behind why this was revealed is this incident that the Prophet ﷺ one day gave a khutbah and in the khutbah he said, O oh people, Allah has made fard upon you the hajj. So do the hajj. And then one sahabi stood up, Ya Rasulullah, every year? Do you have to do it every year? And the Prophet ﷺ stayed silent. And he repeated it again. And he repeated it three times. And the Prophet ﷺ was silent each time. Then, after the third time that he remained, the Prophet stayed silent. He said, hey, is it every year? Is it every year? Is it every year? And the Prophet was saying silent. Then the Prophet said, if I would have said yes, it would have become binding upon you every year. And then he said, ذَرُونِي مَا تَرَكْتُكُمْ فَإِنَّمَا أَهْلَكَ مَنْ كَانَ قَبْلَكُمْ كَثْرَةُ سُؤَالِهِمْ وَاخْتِلَافُهُمْ عَلَىٰ أَنْبِيَائِهِمْ فَإِذَا أَمَرْتُكُمْ بِشَيْءٍ فَأْتُوا مِنْهُ مَا اسْتَطَعْتُمْ وَإِذَا نَهِيتُكُمْ عَنْ شَيْءٍ فَدَعُوهُ So you see, the context of this hadith was that this man, it was Aqra' ibn Habis. They say this Sahabi who asked this question was Al-Aqra' ibn Habis. And the Prophet said something to him which we should take into consideration and that is if I would have said yes then it would have become binding till the day of judgment upon Muslims that they have to do Hajj every single year now imagine it was already difficult once in a lifetime some people they you know save up and they used to and still you know there's people in some parts of the world that they save up their entire life savings to do Hajj once in their life and then, you know, three months journey to get there. And then they stay there for four months. And then three months journey to come back. It was a one year endeavor to do the Hajj. So what we understand here is that in the, prof in the prophetic era, when Quran and Wahi was being revealed, there was something that was happening. This is, this is not applicable today. But there was something that was happening in the prophetic era while wahi was being revealed is that while the revelation was being revealed to, uh, to, to the messenger of Allah the sahaba anhum were also in a test they were being tested as well that what is the response of the companions so the companions they did not have it easy it's not easy to be the muhajirin and the Nazar. the tests that they went through the mujahada and the struggles that they went through the commitments that they had to make, the sacrifices that they had to give were more than anyone else. And that is why their maqam and that is why the, the jannah that Abu Bakr is going to be at is not going to be, you know, the jannah that, you know, the lay people are going to be at because Abu Bakr gave the sacrifice of Abu Bakr to such an extent that, you know, when the Prophet said, you know, give your wealth, Abu Bakr didn't, no questions asked, brought his whole wealth, everything he's had. He put all of his bank account and his house and his belongings and everything he brought in for the. So you told me bring your wealth, here's my wealth. 
Umar radiallahu brought half of it. He saved half for the family. He saved half. Of it. He said, oh, Abu Bakr, when I saw Abu Bakr brought everything, I said, I'm not going to compete with this guy no more. He's not somebody that I can compete with. In other words, yani, in that period, the Sahaba were being tested as well. The Sahaba's faith and their commitment and their sacrifice was being tested to see that if they were not going to be compliant and if they were not going to submit, then harder rules would be brought upon them. This was a general, this was a, actually this was the test of the people who lived in the time of revelation. I'll give you an example of this. I want to take you back to ayah number 67 of Surah Al-Baqarah. And this story is very much related to understand, it's very much related to the story of when Musa salam commanded his people, right? وَإِذْ قَالَ مُوسَىٰ لِقَوْمِهِ إِنَّ اللَّهِ يَأْمُرُكُمْ أَن تَذْبَحُوا بَقَرَةً And remember, O Sahaba, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on Musa salam told his people, Allah has commanded you to sacrifice a cow. Many of you have probably heard the story of the cow in Surah Al-Baqarah, but we have to understand what's the objective of this. What does Allah want us to learn from Bani Israel that they did wrong? What was their, what was their flaw? What was their shortcoming? What was their mistake here? First thing they said when Allah, when, when, I mean, this is the Prophet of Allah. He's Allah's ambassador. He's Allah's spokesperson. Look, first thing they said when they said, and when Allah Ta'ala is commanding you to slaughter a cow, what was their first response? Atatakhiduna huzuwa? Do you know what that means? Hey man, you're joking with us? Atatakhiduna huzuwa? Are you, are you joking around? Are you messing with me, man? Come on, you can't be serious. My God. I mean, this is, this is, their, this is their response to their messenger. Are you kidding me? Are you serious? And they're saying this to who? To the messenger of God. Immediately, what did Musa salam say to them? I seek protection in Allah to be from the ignorant ones. How could you? <laughs> what do you think? I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a comedian here? This is stand-up comedy for you? I seek refuge in Allah that I should be from these ignorant ones. God gave you a commandment. Yes, Musa salam. Whatever Allah Ta'ala has commanded. This, this ayah and this incident teaches us Islam, which means submission. That when the commandment is given, a true believer doesn't go into the details and say, oh, but you know, is it peanut butter or is it jelly? Is it this or is it that? You just, just, it's a cow. Just slaughter a cow. But we see while the revelation is being revealed because they are non-compliant, what is happening to them? Very similar to what I mentioned before, that while the revelation is being revealed, the Sahaba, or those to whom the revelation are being revealed, they are also being tested. That at that time, Allah is seeing their compliance. Allah is seeing the hearts of those companions, because they are also at a very high level of faith, and the promises of paradise and the promises of reward to them are higher than the promises of reward even to us. Because they are the recipients of revelation. How will they respond? 
How will they respond? And now we're going to get in the end of, in the end of surah. This is interesting because the surah is called Baqarah, which reminds us of the non-compliance of the Jews or the Israelites at that time. Not the Jews, the Israelites of that time. And then at the end, it's talking about the Sahaba who when they were commanded to do something, they said, Sami'ana wa ta'ana. They didn't say, are you joking with us? They said, we heard and we obey. This is the response of, this is Islam. This is taslim. This is submission. And then we, as you know, the story goes on when they didn't want to comply. Hey man, you're joking with us? Then what happens? Then they say, uh, Call your Lord, Moses. And, and, and this shows their distance from Allah. Make dua to your Lord. What does he want from us? Imagine their distance from Allah. That they don't say, ask Allah or ask our Lord. You know? What did the Sahaba say? سَمِعْنَا وَعْطَانَ غُفْرَانَكَ رَبَّنَا وَإِلَيْكَ الْمَصِيرِ رَبَّنَا They said, رَبُّكَ Tell your Lord, Moses, He's not our Lord. He's your Lord. Tell Him what type of cow He wants from us. Should it be like this or should it be yellow? Or, you know, and then the story goes on. The whole objective is they're like children. You know when you tell your kids, hey baby, I want you to clean up your room. Uh, okay, Baba, can I just you know, do it after I you know, play this game? Or can I get, you know, do I have to do all my room or half my room or the whole room or just part of my room? And you know how they start meaning they don't want to do it. Non all of the whole story is the opposite of submission. When we hear bakara, Baqarah should remind us of non-compliance. That Baqarah is such an easy thing. Baqarah, man, you just go down Highway 1, you got a whole bunch of Baqaras right there. Just go off the, just go off the ramp and you got Baqarah anywhere, you know, even in the Bay Area, you got hills. You can just pick any cow you want. It's such a simple thing. Baqarah is a very simple thing. It doesn't have like, it's not like a, uh, you know, a, a pink unicorn with a you know, purple horn or something like that. It's such a very normal thing that they made such a simple thing so complicated because they were not ready to submit. And this teaches us another thing. Baqarah teaches us deen is very simple. Islam is very simple. And people, what they do is they overcomplicate it with, oh, but what about this? 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 And then what happens? By the end, I mean, just fulfill it. Do you see what I'm saying? Just do what you have been commanded to do. Otherwise, this very simple thing can become the most complex. And at the end, what does it say? Right? فَذَبَحُوهَا وَمَا كَانُوا يَفْعَلُونَ And they finally, and they finally slaughtered it and they were not even close to doing it because they made it so difficult for themselves. Every time they kept coming back to Musa salam. Now, you see this in comparison to if we go all the way to the end of Surah Baqarah, there was one commandment, difficult commandment. You have a right to ask, but not to, right, not to dispute or argue with your messengers. 
So when these verses were revealed, to Allah belongs everything that is in the heavens and the earth. And if you expose anything that's in your heart, or if you hide it, Allah will take you into account for every thought and for everything that comes inside of you. And He'll forgive who He wants and He punishes who He wants. And Allah does what He wills. So when the companions heard this, He said, Ya Rasulullah, you know what? You told us to pray and we prayed. You told us to give charity, we gave charity. You told us to fight and we fought. But this one is pretty hard. That anything that comes in our mind, we're going to be taken into account for it. Like, I just get a sudden thought in my mind about something bad. So will Allah punish me for it? So that's basically what the ayah is saying. The Messenger of Allah stayed silent. He said, this is what Allah has commanded. What did the companion say that once they knew that this is Allah and this is what the hadith is telling us? What I have commanded you, fulfill it to the best of your ability. If this is what the command of Allah is, then I'm not going to question it. If this is what the Quran says, I'm not going to question it. This is what it is, that's what it is. What did the Sahaba say when they were sure this is what was the command of Allah? That any thought that comes in my mind, I'm in trouble. Allah can take me into account. What did they say? We heard and we obey. And may Allah forgive us. To Him is our return. When they said that, do you know what happened? Allah lifted that from them. Allah lifted it from them. Then Allah Ta'ala revealed these verses. Allah was so pleased with this response. This Surah Baqarah teaches Islam, actually. Baqarah teaches us the story of the Israelites, teaches us non-compliance. The end of Surah Baqarah teaches us complete submission. That even if there's something that might be so difficult for you, but you know that Allah has commanded this, if you believe. And remember what we said, that Allah will never command you something that you cannot do. But they had submitted. They did not realize this yet. They submitted. And because of their submission, because of their compliance, because they said, we are Muslims, whatever Allah has told us, we accept it. Allah made it easy for them. And not, did Allah, not only did Allah make it easy for them, Allah made it easy for all of humanity till the day of judgment. لا يكلف الله نفسا إلا وسعها. Allah will not put a burden on someone that he cannot bear. لَهَا ما كسبت Meaning, if a thought comes in your mind, as long as you don't put it into action, Allah will not take you into account for it. Subhanallah. You can have a million thoughts. I just got a thought of killing someone. I just got a thought of stealing something. I just got a thought of doing something terrible. And I say, Astaghfirullah. That's it. As long as you didn't put it into, you didn't implement that evil action, Allah will forgive you for the thought that came in your mind. Many people say, Shaykh, I get all these filthy thoughts. I get all of these bad thoughts. Remember, as long as you don't put those thoughts to, you don't implement them, you don't put them to practice, they are not a sin. They are just thoughts. They are air. It doesn't even exist. It's fairy dust. It's just nothing. It's nothing. It doesn't even exist. You should not feel guilty for a thought that comes in your mind. Allah said it in the Quran. You will get what you earn and against you will be the sin that you commit and perpetrate.
then you should say, Rabbana la tu'akhidna in nasina wa akhta'na. Oh Allah, don't take us into account if we make a mistake or if we, you know, forget. Then we have these two things. Sometimes we might forget and do something. And sometimes we might become weak and do something. Oh Allah, forgive us. Look at the beauty and look at how easy it is. Subhanallah. So we learn from this hadith such an important point that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala first and foremost looks at our... And, and another thing in this hadith. A lot of things. But there's another thing, another point to take into consideration. That if we look at Islam and the commandments... Fear Allah and obey Allah to the best of your capacity. Now, for example, I want to pray, and for example, I just had an operation. I have all the uh, wires in me. I don't need to make wudu. I just make tayammum. I touch something with like a flat slab of marble or some sand. And I just wipe my face and I wipe my hands to the fullest of my extent. Uh, I can't move, okay? Then whatever, face, whatever direction you're facing, that will be the direction of your qibla. But I have a, a, a blood because I just had a... a then that blood is also ma'dhur. You're, you're excused of that as well. SubhanAllah. Fattakullah must pray. And for example, your... Uh, another example is you are... You don't have water to make wudu. You use, you use tayammum, right? You use dust. You can't stand in prayer. So if you can't stand, then pray sitting. If you can't pray sitting, right? Pray on your side. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this deen has made everything according to our capacity. If you cannot perform hajj, hajj has you've been absolved of the hajj. You can't give zakat, then you're a recipient of zakat. If you can't give zakat, you are liable and you are eligible to receive zakat. Look at this is beauty. In every sin, everything is in accordance with your capacity. Now, we think that maybe other religions work that way. Uh-uh, they don't. I'll tell you something that I heard um, on a radio talk show. A man was on the radio who is an evangelical Christian. And that evangelical Christian, he was having a discussion and he said that I, um, you know, I'm indebted to my wife. Um, he said, you know, who, who do you love most in this world? He said, I love my wife who's no longer my wife. And he said, I'm indebted to her and because of her, I'm alive. Or the other way around. The other way around. So what it said that his wife was, had some kidney failure or some debilitating illness by which she needed to get a you know, blood transfusion or I think a, a kidney transplant or something. So in evangelical fiqh, whatever fiqh they follow, right? Or in their religion, it's not permissible. So she went into a coma. She went into a coma. And the doctors asked him, you know, what do you want to do? She has clearly said that it is against her will to, or it's against her religion to get this transplant or this blood transfusion. So he says, I don't care. 
I'm her husband and she did not say anything emphatic and in writing. She didn't say it in writing, so legally, I want you to give me, give, give, uh, get, take my blood to give her a blood transfusion or something like that, and he authorized it. She was dying. She was in a coma. So he authorized the blood transfusion, which she said, I want to die because my religion doesn't allow it. So he gave the blood transfusion. She woke up. She said, how am I alive? He said, oh, congratulations. Your husband sacrificed for you. He gave you this blood transfusion. He said, I want a divorce right now. I want a divorce from him that he did what is against the will of God. So we think, subhanAllah, we know, and I, like I said, I was in the hospital just recently for my, you know, my son's situation, and they said, sir, I'd like to ask that if your son needs a blood transfusion, is that okay for you? I said, well, it's a, of course, of course, if we have to do it, then we have to do it. It's all because, you know, we're asking because of religious reasons. Certain people will not get blood. I said, but, but it said, what, what is your religion? You said you're Muslim. What does your religion say about this? I said, our religion says that if your life is in danger, you can do this. You can take any option to save and preserve life. Because Allah Ta'ala says, obey my commandments to the best of your ability. We know that blood is, blood is not pure. Blood is najis. Blood is not pure. You are not supposed to like drink blood. Blood is haram. Maybe it comes from some biblical commandments that the evangelicals are following. We follow that as well. But in this place, look at the wisdom of the sharia that if your life is in danger, that which is not permissible becomes permissible. But I'm saying is, don't think that the other faiths or you know, other sharias, they have that leeway and the beauty that Islam has. So I saw this and it was, it was, it was pretty mind-boggling. How much people, you see, this is the amount of how strict and how serious people are about their faith in this country. And you know that with the vaccine, you ain't getting out of these mandated vaccines. The only thing that has the, the, the strength to smack down the mandates is if you have a religious exemption letter. So amongst the evangelicals, it's serious matter. When they say that this is what it means, this is what it means. So I think in their strictness, there's a good aspect of it because it starts make you start taking religion very seriously. In our thing, well, everything can be halal if you're in a difficult situation. A difficult situation is like, yeah, you know, I don't feel like making wudu today. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Some people misunderstand and misuse this. That's not good either. Do you see what I'm saying? Well, I just don't feel like making wudu today. It's kind of cold. The water feels kind of cold. No, I like this one. Somebody told me, Sheikh, I just, I just can't fast. Fasting isn't, fasting isn't for me. I said, why? I said, I just get really hungry. <laughs> I just get really hungry. Fasting isn't for me. I said, really? Yeah. That's interesting. That's the point. You're supposed to get hungry. <laughs> Anyways, so, you know, look at how easy Allah Ta'ala has made it. But Allah hasn't made it easy for you to get lazy. You understand what I'm saying? And then, right, the final thing is, What destroyed the people before you, like we heard about Bani Israel, right now, the story of Bani Israel. 
where they're constantly bickering, constantly fighting with the prophet. Oh, Musa, you know, ask your God what type of cow, this type of cow, that type of cow, you know, yellow cow, plowing cow, home cow, city cow, farm cow, what type of cow, you know? And in doing that, they're actually dis disputing with their messengers. So the Prophet is telling us that the reality of Islam is submission and compliance. It's, I mean, it's not wrong to ask questions to clarify a matter, but not when you're like literally heckling somebody or you're literally, you know, disputing with somebody in order to get out of that or ask so many questions in order to get out of the, that situation. What destroyed the people before you is their abundant questioning and disputing, which the whole objective of their disputing was non-compliance. Remember, so questioning in order to clarify so that you may comply, there's nothing wrong with that. But questioning for, in the, for the sake of non-compliance. There was a person who was, he, a couple of days ago, he, he called me. He said, I gave a thousand divorces to my wife. More than a hundred more than a hundred times, every time I would get mad at her, I would say, you're talaq, 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 a thousand times and fifty million times till the day of judgment. He said, and I've done that as long as I can remember from the day that we were married. So I said, sorry, man. I don't know. In every madhab, you're, you're gone, bro. You know, there are certain people who say three is one, one is three, but even the three is one people were not going to understand this one. This one is like way out of the... You hit the ball. This is a grand slam. You hit the ball out of the park. So then look at what he tells me. He said, but I didn't say it three times. I said it a thousand times. I'm like, this is exactly what it is. This is exactly what it is. You see my point? That they're disputing, and, they're, and he was arguing with me that no, it says that you're supposed to say three. I said it over a thousand times. I said it 10,000 times. Every time that I, we would get in an argument, I'd say, you're divorced a thousand times. I said, how many times did you do this? He said, from the time I remember we got married the first day. Well, you know, but I didn't say three. I swear he said that. And my son was sitting next to me. He's just a kid. He's like, Dad, these people have asked you crazy questions. I mean, these are the, he's a child, and he knows that this person is really, like, he's, he's, he's non-compliant, you know? I said, well, lie, if anything, that, if it was in my power, I would say, you're okay, you know, go back to, I, I can't, it's not my thing, it's not my deen. I don't have that, that, that power. If I tell you, yeah, go ahead. He said, no, 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 just, just I'll, I'll do anything. Just read our nikah again. Just read our nikah again. We'll come to the masjid and we'll just start all over again. I said, it's not a video game. You just press the reset button. It's a serious matter. And then, you know, it's just, I was on the phone with him for an hour and he kept arguing this, but I didn't say it three. I said it a thousand. And the hadith says three times or the Quran says three times and I said it, you know, 15,000 or 10,000 or whatever. I said, Are you, he's a serious grown 50-year-old man and he's saying this. And it sounds like childish. Khair, this also teaches us the importance of seeking knowledge. The importance of seeking knowledge. 
and the importance of staying connected with scholars and sitting in gatherings like this so that we can continue to save ourselves from ignorance. Imagine what Musa salam said in this ayat, billahi an akuna min al-jahilin. Oh Allah, I seek refuge from being from the ignorant ones. Why? Because when you're from amongst the ignorant ones, you will do the most crazy things to yourself and to others. The craziest things you'll do to yourself and to others, and you'll make a thousand excuses, but it's never going to solve the problem. And it all stemmed from ignorance. May Allah Ta'ala give us a tawfiq to understand what has been said, to understand the beauty of our deen, and at the same time, what it means to submit and to understand Allah Ta'ala's commandments. So in this, in this hadith, it goes because the Prophet ﷺ mentioned nahi before amr. Right? He mentions nahi before amr. Why did he mention ma nahaytukum anhu? Yani fajtanibuhu. Wa ma amartukum bihi fa'atu bihi mastata'atum. Why? Is because to avert harm takes precedence over accruing good. You understand what I'm saying? 